But a lot can happen in two years. And two years is the amount of time that we here at Matthias' Lot have been in the book of Luke. Almost two years now. And for some of you, like me, uh, you haven't been there, haven't been here very long. I've been here about four months. My name's Noah. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the church planning intern here. And about eight months from now, Matthias' Lot is sending me and my team out down to Soulard, downtown St. Louis, to plant a church much like this. And so that's who I am and who you are, are people who are praying right now whether God would send you with us, right? Okay, there's a lot of response on that. But, but right, that's what's going on. And so since a lot of us haven't been here for the last two years, you know, my lot family's brand new. Everybody in there has been, has been new to Matthias since I got here. The Gospel of Luke is, is very new to us. And what we can miss if we don't back up a little bit tonight... We can miss some of the main purpose and main theme uh, information of the Gospel of Luke that we need to grab if we're going to understand what's going on tonight. Because tonight, tonight, after two years of studying the life and death of Jesus, we are finally at the climax of the Gospel of Luke. We're finally there. We're at the resurrection tonight. And for us to understand this resurrection and what Luke is talking about, we've got to back up a little bit. We've got to look at the purpose of why Luke even wrote this book to begin with. So during the 50s, 60s, and 70s of the first century, the gospel tradition was being spread all throughout the area, all throughout the, the, the known world at the time, by word of mouth. They didn't have a lot of things written down. But what happened was, persecution began to break out, and so people needed to have this gospel tradition written down. And so some men took it upon themselves to write this down. First, there's a guy named Mark. Mark wrote the first gospel roughly in the mid-50s. He wrote it to, to uh, Roman Christians who were undergoing persecution. So they would, they would be strengthened in their faith and they'd be able to walk this, this Jesus thing out. Next came Matthew. He was a Jew who wrote to Jews. So you read the book of Matthew, there's a lot of Jewish uh, context in there. And then next there was a guy named Luke who wrote a book. And he wrote it to Gentiles. Specifically he wrote to a guy named Theophilus. You've heard this word over the last few years many, many times. It's a very strange word. But if you break it down, it's a very cool word because it actually means lover of God. Theophilus. The lover of God. And so this, this man was more than likely a benefactor, a rich Roman official who gave Luke the money, who gave him a living for a year or, or so, however long it took to write this gospel down. And so when Luke wrote this book to Theophilus, he didn't just write it to him, but he wrote it to all these people who would read this. That was common in the, in the first century. And so Luke himself tells us the purpose that, for which he wrote this book. He says in Luke 1 4, we're actually going to put that on the screen for you. In Luke 1 4, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Luke has one central thing in mind when he's writing the Gospel of Luke. He wants that the, his readers to understand the things they have heard in this oral tradition of called the Gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He wants them to know they can believe it, and they can believe it with certainty. And so he, from the very get-go, he says, this is the purpose for which this book is written. And for those of you who are, who are new, have been here uh, only a year or so, you, we didn't catch that at the beginning. And so it's crucial for us to understand that tonight as we're going uh, into this. And so for the last 24 some odd months, Mark and Jason have been teaching the proof that Luke is talking about. Been teaching this proof over and over again. And now we're here at the crux of the matter, the resurrection. See, everything, everything falls on the resurrection. It is the linchpin of Christianity. If the resurrection did not happen, everything else will crumble into a pile of rubble. The crucifixion is is everything the gospel stands on. Without the crucifixion, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, that our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Luke knows this. Paul wrote those words and Luke traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. And so Luke knew this theology that if there was no resurrection, 
then the gospel is worthless. And so he sets out to write this book that we are, are so privileged to read. And he makes a claim over and over and over again for the truthfulness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so tonight I want you to think of two words as we're studying this scripture, okay? The first word is evidence. Everybody say evidence. And the second word is example. Everybody say example. See, over and over and over in the Gospels, the writers are giving us evidence of the truthfulness of the gospel, and they're giving us examples to follow. These characters are not the only characters in the Jesus story, but they are included for a purpose. And so when we read, if we overlook the purpose, we don't look at them as an example, whether good or bad. We don't look at that. We're missing something. So tonight we're going to be talking about evidence and examples. Let's get started. You guys ready? We're in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 50. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Let's pause there. Why does Luke give us so much information about Joseph? Because there's evidence here. There's evidence. First, we have to understand, he was from Arimathea. And why is that important? Arimathea is a Judean city. It's not in Galilee. Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee. And this area is where most of his disciples came from. They all came from Galilee. And so, for Joseph to be a believer in Jesus, to be involved in this, and not be from Galilee is a huge deal. He's not one of Jesus' homies back from his hometown. They're trying to make a name for, them, for himself. He actually believes. And he has no reason to. Next, we find that he's a member of the council. That means he was at Jesus' trial. The trial that Mark and Jason preached on a few weeks ago. He was there to hear all the words, see all the accusations, see what went down before Jesus was crucified. He was there, and he's probably the eyewitness. Him and Nicodemus are probably the eyewitnesses that all the gospel writers pull from. Because they were in there. Next we find out that he's a good and righteous man. This phrase is used a few times in the Gospel of Luke. And it's used for people like Anna and Simeon and Elizabeth. People that love God. This phrase actually means he was generous and had excellent character. This is evidence. This is not a guy who, who runs his mouth. He's not the town gossip. He's a guy who has amazing character and can be trusted. This is evidence over and over and over again. And finally we hear that he was waiting on the kingdom of God. That's terminology for saying he was a good Jew waiting for the Messiah. He was a good Jew, just like the guys in the council who crucified Jesus. He was waiting for the Messiah. Verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So what Joseph does, he goes to Pilate, and Pilate is the only person that has the jurisdiction to give Jesus' body to him. So he goes to Pilate. And one of the other gospels says he goes in private. Probably because the council they find out about this is not going to be good news for his job. And so he goes in private, goes to Pilate, says, hey, can I have the body of Jesus? Pilate grants that. He takes his body, wraps it in a linen shroud, and places it in a tomb where no one has been laid. This is a huge deal. For us, it's kind of like, what's the big deal? And when I get buried, I'm being in the ground where no one else has been. But for, the, for this, this context, what happened when you died on a cross, you were a criminal, you were taken down and you were thrown into a common pit with the rest of the criminals. There was this pit of dead bodies where Jesus should have been thrown. But Joseph took him down and what he did in Hebrew culture, he gave him a burial fit for a king. See, other people you could bury, normal people, in a tomb with other people, but not a king. A king had to be by himself in a tomb where no one else had been buried. And so Joseph takes him. We find out from history this is probably his own tomb. He'd been saving. 
His family had passed it down to him. No one had ever been buried in it. And it was going to be for him because he was a rich, prominent man. And he takes Jesus, who we know is the king of everything, and puts him in his tomb and gives him the right kind of burial. There is nothing for Joseph to gain. You understand this. There is nothing for him to gain, but there is everything for him to lose in following Jesus. But he does it anyway. And Luke points this out to us for one huge purpose, for evidence to understand that the gospel is true. But not only is there evidence here, there's also an example. Luke included Joseph in so much detail because he wanted Joseph to be an example to first century Christians. So he said, the gospel of Luke is written roughly around the year 62 AD. And during this time in Rome, all this area is under Roman, Roman control, and persecution began to break out against Christians. And so, writing this gospel... Gentiles would read this and they would see an example to live a a just and upright, a good life before God in the midst of a hostile majority. Joseph is also an example for us today. It's an example to live a good and upright life in the face of a seemingly unbeatable majority. Jesus has called us to be the salt of the earth. Matthew 5.13 is going to be on the board here. It says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus has called us to be the salt of the earth. And what that means is we are called as the church to be here preserving society. But what happens when we stop doing that? What happens when the church stops caring about the direction society is going? What happens? What does the scripture tell us? You guys notice how things are progressively getting worse and worse in our culture? You noticing that? You ever watch commercials on TV? 20 years ago, the commercials we have in primetime prime time TV were labeled as pornography in our, in our country. And they're now in primetime TV for our kids to watch. And we watch them day in and day out numerous times, and it doesn't even phase us. Because things are getting worse, and we don't even understand it. Jesus taught that these, these sort of things would happen. He taught over and over again in the Gospels that... That evil was going to rise, but so was the church. It was going to remain strong. I saw this t-shirt um, last night that I'm, I think I'm going to buy my dad for Christmas. And if you, uh, Most of you don't know my dad. Maybe hear, hear me tell stories about him. He's a very political guy. So I'm about to get political, okay? So I'll have to excuse that for a second. I saw this t-shirt. And the front of it, it was brilliant. The front of it said, God is not a conservative Republican. And most of you right now are probably angry. Um, <laughs> But I was like, that's an amazing shirt. But what's better, I'm about to make the rest of you angry. You look at the back of the shirt, and he says, but he's definitely not a liberal Democrat. And I erupted in joy and said, I need this shirt for my dad. Um, sorry to get political there. But this last election, guys, I must be honest with you, I was horrified. And I'm, I mean that word with all of its vigor. I was horrified at the lack of care that Christians had for issues that are getting worse and worse and worse in our culture. Horrified. And now I don't think the pulpit is a place to talk about who you should vote for. I believe it's a place to talk about issues that are near to God's heart. You know Relevant Magazine? Anybody read Relevant Magazine? I guess people that read Relevant Magazine are are young, cool, hip, trendy Christians, right? So most everybody in this room, uh, you guys should read Relevant Magazine. Well, Relevant Magazine did a poll about the election. And they did a poll of people much like the people in this room today. And they did a poll on the issues that we cared about the most. Two issues were not even in the top ten. Abortion 
the mass murder of over 40 million babies in our country in the last 35 years, and marriage. We're not even in the top 10 that our generation cared about and voted over. You know, the thing is, I heard a lot of Christians say, I can't vote on those issues. You know why? Because there's no chance for me to change them. Nothing's going to get better. We are called to be the salt of the earth. Joseph is an example to us. And Jesus is saying, through Luke's gospel, yes, there is a way. There is a way for us to live moral and upright lives in the face of a daunting majority. As Mark says almost week after week, God's sovereignty never negates personal responsibility. We are called to defend the defenseless. We are called to stand for truth. And if the church won't do it, will anybody? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. But now that I've been political, let's move on. Verse 54. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So Luke here sets the scene for us. It's late afternoon, Friday. It's about to get dark. Sabbath is tomorrow. It starts at sundown. And so Joseph goes and gets the body of Jesus from Pilate. As quick as he can, he wraps it in a linen shroud and places it in the tomb. We have to understand in this culture back then, they didn't have embalming fluid. And so a body would get really, really stinky really, really quick. And so what they would do is they would put about 80 to 100 pounds, no joke, 80 to 100 pounds of spices and ointments on the body, and then they would wrap it up. And that would help with the decay. Because it was so late in the day, Joseph wasn't able to do that. And the woman, it says they actually saw how the body was laid. And so they went home to prepare the spices. They were to come back and give Jesus a proper burial on Sunday morning. So in, in, this, in this, these couple of verses here, we see a few things. The first we see that the women saw the tomb. This is important. Because one of the biggest rumors in the first century was that the women, you know, women are about the directions, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The women are about the directions. They just, they, their GPS didn't work that day, and they went to the wrong tomb. And then Jesus' body wasn't there, and I went and told the disciples, and they started this mass movement that's changed the face of the earth. Luke points out the women saw, they followed Joseph, they saw the tomb, and they returned back a day later, a day and a half later. The second thing we see is they did not expect a risen Savior. There wasn't some kind of plan going on here. It wasn't some kind of conspiracy. These women were expecting to come back in a day and a half, and they were going to treat the body of the dead, decaying, smelly Jesus. A body that's dead for that long with no treatment is going to begin to stink. And they plan to come back and to put the spices and ointments on Jesus' body and wrap him up again. They didn't expect a risen Savior. And the third, these women were good Jews. They were, they were honoring the Sabbath. They went home and they honored the Sabbath. Let's, let's look at this for a second. If you're going to go lie to everybody about what just happened, breaking one of God's Ten Commandments, why would you honor another one? These women are good Jews. They honored the Sabbath. It, it's a proof that they, they could be trusted, that their word was true. So over and over and over again, we have evidence, we have evidence, we have evidence of the truthfulness of the gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus 
And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Maybe your, your uh, translation says, like lightning. I prefer dazzling apparel. It makes me think of uh, all you guys doing Dirty December with your mustaches, dressed in sequined outfits. It reminds me of. Picture Todd up here playing the cajon with dazzling apparel. That's kind of what it felt like. And their, their reaction would be much like ours is. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the, med, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Jesus had been saying from the get-go, this is going to happen. Those of you who have been here for the last two years and have been listening to the Gospel of Luke, maybe you remember those scriptures as they were taught. Jesus, three times, three distinctive times, he talked and foretold of his coming death. These three references are, are Luke 9, 22 and 44, 17, 25, and chapter 18, 32 and 33. Three times Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. And anyone reading this gospel, anyone that Luke wrote to and read, and read this gospel or heard this gospel, because back then what they used to do is read the entire gospel in one sitting. That's how you would read a letter. And so they would sit and they would, they would listen to this be read. And you would notice when, they, when the angel said, remember, you would remember. Because we've taken a long period of time to teach this, we don't always remember. But the, the original audience would have understood that. And so as we read Luke, it becomes one of the main themes Three times Jesus foretells his death, and three times his followers don't understand. The women obviously didn't understand. They were there to prepare the body. The disciples obviously didn't understand. They were huddled together in a house, feeling sorry for themselves. No one expected a risen Jesus. They expected to mourn over dead, decaying Jesus. Verse 9, And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So Luke here tells us a little about these women in the report. First one we have is Mary Magdalene. Remember her. She's talked about in all four Gospels. An ex-prostitute, seven demons cast out, goes on to be one of the greatest followers of Jesus. She's a very prominent person in the early church tradition. So much she's talked about in every Gospel. Her word can be trusted. She was an eyewitness with these gospel writers. The next person was Joanna. Joanna's mentioned in Luke chapter 8. She's Herod's manager's uh, wife. She's a very prominent woman. She has nothing to gain in following Jesus. And the third woman, we have Mary, the mother of James. And this is most likely Mary, the mother of Jesus as well. James was Jesus' half-brother. And James goes on to be one of the three pillars in the early Jerusalem church. And so you have to believe... His mom has credibility. His mom has a good word about her. And so people would have understood these women as credible. So once again, we have evidence. Are you seeing over and over and over and again how Luke is, is proving to us that this is true? It can be trusted. And the last, the last bit of evidence he gives us, um, it can surprise us. It can sneak up on us if we're not careful. All throughout Luke's gospel, he uses this word. He calls these guys who follow Jesus apostles. We usually refer to them before the book of Acts as disciples. 
But the word apostles, it comes from the Greek apostolos. And that word means a delegate or a sent one. Men on a mission. Luke does this on purpose. What he's proving here in his gospel is these men sent on a mission, who later, later the word apostle was defined as someone who saw the resurrected Christ and was called to preach the gospel. These men who were on this mission, who gave their lives for Jesus, all but one of them were martyred because they couldn't kill the, the other guy. These men started in disbelief. They weren't the first ones to the tomb. They weren't the ones declaring it to everybody. They started in disbelief. They believed it was an idle tale. They thought it was a fairy tale these women were talking about. They thought these women were crazy. See, in Jewish culture, a woman couldn't, couldn't be a legal, a legal witness in a trial. Only men could. But in Greek culture, women could. And so this Greek audience that's hearing this would see this, and they would feel bad for the women, saying, well, they won't listen to him. It's true, it's true, it's true. And it's just another way that Luke proves the trustworthiness of the life, death, and here, the resurrection of Jesus. The proof is overwhelming. And here we have the fact that these men started in disbelief. This is the greatest proof there is to the gospel. You see, today we live in this modern era. We're getting to a postmodern era. But most of us modern minds. We want, we want to prove things with science. So, so our, biggest, our biggest hurdle today when talking to people about Jesus' resurrection is the empty tomb. Luke doesn't even talk about the empty tomb very much. He doesn't, he doesn't create a proof for that at all. Because back in those times, supernaturalism was big. People understood that God did things. Much as postmodern, postmodernism is getting today, we don't believe, trust science as much as we used to. But over and over again, the proofs are about people. They're about people's character. They're about people's word. And we, don't, we don't really understand that. But here's what we can understand. The greatest proof there is is that these men who gave their life for Jesus started in disbelief. And this is why it's the biggest proof, the biggest piece of evidence. Because someone will die for what they think is true, but no one will die for what they know is false. Catch that again. Someone will die for what they think is true. Right? We see all in the news all the time, people blowing themselves up for religion. They think it's true, and so they'll die for it. But think about this. No one in their right mind will ever die for something they know is a lie or know is false. These disciples were there. These apostles gave their life for Jesus. If they knew it was a farce, they don't, oh, it was just a, it was cool for a little while, it was fun while it lasted, you're about to cut my head off, nope, it's, this thing's fake. It didn't happen. Because they saw it, they knew it was true. And Luke emphasizes over and over again, the gospel, uh, more than the other gospels, that the apostles had a role in the resurrection. And so, as these Gentiles are hearing they're hearing this message of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. They can understand it's true because the apostles were there. Finally, verse 12 says, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Guess who's back in the limelight? All throughout Luke we see Peter as this guy who cannot catch a break. Jesus calls him the devil at one point. That's a good day. He betrays Jesus a few days ago. He, he betrayed Jesus. He denied him three times to a slave girl and other people that were standing around. But here we see Luke putting Peter back on the road to redemption. Though only a few days ago he's denying Jesus here in a few chapters into the book of Acts. A few weeks later, he's going to stand up in Jerusalem and he's going to give the greatest altar call that the world has ever known. I know we're not really into altar calls anymore. But back then, you see 5,000 people come to Christ. 
and all you do is preach a small message, I mean, that's a good day. So, Peter is shown here coming back, and we see that the first 12 chapters of Acts, Luke's second part of his book, Luke and Acts actually go together. We see that Peter is the main character in the story and shows how the church in Jerusalem was formed on this man and his witness. But as we talked about evidence, there's also an example here. See, this whole thing is bigger than an Easter pageant. It's bigger than one Sunday a year. We've got to get this. It is bigger than an epic movie. This resurrection thing is the crux of the entire gospel. We can all, everyone in this room, every reader of the Gospel of Luke has the option to respond as Peter or option to respond a different way. We can all hear the evidence that we've all heard tonight and we can believe that it's an idle tale and we can walk away. Or we can examine the evidence, we can run to the tomb and we can marvel at what's been done. But here's the question, what has been done? So Jesus raised from the dead, what does that even mean for our lives? We sing a lot of songs about it. We celebrate it once a year by hiding eggs and eating bunnies. But what does the resurrection even mean for our lives? The crucifixion is the evidence that God himself confirmed Jesus' pre-Easter activities. See, to the Jews, Jesus had blasphemed. Jesus called himself God, and that's why they killed him. But if Jesus was raised from the dead... What that assumes is that God, the one he presumably blasphemed and offended, is actually got his back in proving who Jesus is. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated his victory over death. It vindicated him as righteous. It indicated his divine identity. It led to his ascension in heavenly reign. It guarantees the believer's present forgiveness and justification. And it is the hope of eternal life in Christ for those who believe. That's all good and poetic. But here's what we do. We spend too much time in the theoretical and not enough in the actual. We say that again. We spend too much time in the theoretical and not enough in the actual. As we get ready to to worship some more, I want us to focus on just one of the benefits that we have of the resurrection. In your bulletin, you got this card. and, And Todd put this stuff together. It's amazing. There's over and over and over the benefits of the resurrection. And they're innumerable. This is only a few of them. We have these available to us, but how many times do we tap into them? So what I want to do is I want to focus on one of these. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We've heard, this, we've heard this, this scripture all the time. When someone gets saved. Some of you may have a paintings with an eagle over a lake that says at the bottom, you know, new life, and it has this verse. Put that up on the screen for me. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You guys have heard this verse before, right? Let me ask you this. For how many of you is this verse actually real? Is it actually happened? Or is it just theoretical? Like I said, we spend so much time in the theoretical. Yeah, well, as we struggle with sin, hey, you're a new creation in Christ. Behold, the old's gone, new's come. Hallelujah. Claim it, claim it, claim it. But God wants us to deal in the actual. Because this is true. This scripture is very, very true. This is what happens when we give our lives to Jesus. But are you living a life of the same old, decrepit, sin-soaked existence you lived in before you knew Jesus? 
Are you still the same person? Has Jesus come in and changed your desires? Are you just, as t-shirts and bumper stickers say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace? Nothing's been changed except for your status. See, that's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't say that. It says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel comes in and it changes us. The words of God are the words of life. That Jesus died and he resurrected so we would have power to live a new life. See, I would argue that the greatest benefit that we gain from the resurrection is power. Power to live a life of worship that pleases our God. That power is so great that it can save the worst sinner. It is. If you are here tonight and you feel God tugging on your heart, maybe for weeks now, He's been tugging on your heart. What that means is that God has given you an invitation to follow Him. That means that this, this gospel story that we've been talking about for weeks is for you. And at the same time, if you're a Christian and you are still living in this depressed, broken, beaten down, sin-filled existence, then tonight, Jesus is saying, what about my resurrection? The angel said, remember Remember what Jesus told you. This is all going to happen. Well, tonight, we've got to remember. We've got to remember what Jesus did on the, on the cross. We've got to remember what he did in the resurrection. The Bible tells us that same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that lives in us to live this new life. Did you know that? Then why do we live defeated lives? Sure, suffering comes. And it's going to come. We live in a fallen, broken world. And it's horrible. And I, of all people, hate it. I'm tired of it. But it's real. And Jesus said, in this world you have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He gives us power to live in the midst of that. And sin. Sure, we're all going to struggle until these bodies are made new, which is another benefit of the resurrection. One day we'll have, sin will be done with completely. But until then, the, the, the Bible tells us that, that we have been given the power to battle that sin, to fight that sin, to overcome that sin. You do not have to live in that trapped life anymore. And tonight we're going we're gonna to ask Jesus to do something we don't always ask him to do. We sure we do it as a church. But I'm going to challenge you to ask God to show up tonight in the midst of worship as you sing and change your heart. We talk about God a lot. We talk about Jesus a lot. What about the Holy Spirit? And I'm not going to get charismatic on you here. But the fact is that he is real. He's just as real as the other two, other two persons of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit, His job is to convict and to comfort. And if you're here tonight and you are broken and you need comfort, the Holy Spirit wants to minister to you. And if you are here and you are living a life in rebellion towards God and you know better, He's here to convict you. And I pray tonight, if you do not know Jesus, but you've been checking this thing out and you've been on the fringes, I know that God is, I know God's tugging on your heart. I'm going to challenge you to do what the Bible says. You have to repent of your lifestyle. You've got to repent of your life, the way you've been living, this selfish, self-centered life. And you've got to believe the gospel that he lived, he died, he resurrected, and he's coming back. And you've got to turn to him and give your life over in lordship. Let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to pray, and then we're going to respond, and we're going to ask God to show up and do something. Father, I ask you to send your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would come and you would convict. Lord, I pray you would come and you would, you would comfort. 
Jesus, your gospel is so real. Over and over and over again, we see the proofs. It's there. But God, what are we going to do about it? God, I pray you would challenge us, that we would be like Peter tonight. We would run to the tomb and we would marvel at what has happened. So God, let us marvel. Open our eyes to the truth of your gospel. Open our eyes to the power that there's more than the life we're living. There's more than sin. There's more than depression. God, there's more. So God, would you show up as we worship? And would you change us? In Jesus' name.